theyeshiva.net. There are three kinds of people. Those who know how to count and those who don't. Okay, it took you a moment. I understand it's before your coffee. I speak about those who know how to count and those who don't because there's something uniquely strange about the way we count what we call Svira Sa'imer, the way we count the 49-day count between Passover, Pesach, and Shavuos. The background to this is in a statement in Gemara and Talmud, Tractate Menachas, page 66. Menachas, Samach Vav Amaral of 66a, I quote, Amar Abaya. Abaya says, Mitzvah lemimni yoimi, u mitzvah lemimni shavui. It is a mitzvah to count the days, and it's also a mitzvah to count the weeks. And the Gemara continues that the rabbis who learned in the yeshiva of Rav Ashi, Manu Yoimi Umani Shavui, indeed used to count both the days and the weeks. And then the Gemara says there was another great sage, Amemar, who would only count the days and not the weeks. Omar, he said, Zecher Lemiktash, it's only a commemoration, a memory of the way it was in the temple times, and he only counted days and not weeks, because he felt it was not a biblical obligation. Now what does this mean? What does Abaye mean when he says there's a mitzvah to count days and a mitzvah to count weeks? It all begins with a pasuk, a verse in Parshas Emer. In the portion of Emer where the Torah says, and I quote, Usfartem lachem mimachar as hatnufa, Sheva Shabbosis Tmimus Tiena. From the day after the first day of Yomtif, Mimacharas HaShabbos means the marrow, the marrow of the Shabbos. Mimacharas means tomorrow, the marrow of the Shabbos, meaning the day Shabbos here means Yomtif, the first day of Pesach. The first day after Yomtif, which means the second day of Passover, you should start counting. From the day that you bring an offering known as the Omer offering, you should begin counting and continue counting for seven full weeks. You should count until you get to the end of the seven weeks, count altogether up to 50 days, and then you celebrate Shavuos and you have a special offering on Shavuos. There's another Pasuk in Parshas Re'ei. In Deuteronomy, the Torah says, Shiva Shavua is Tisparlach. You should count seven weeks. Mehachil Chermes Bakama. From when you pick up the sickle to the harvest. From when you lift up your sickle to the standing crop and you begin cutting it. Tachelisper Shiva Shavua Start counting seven weeks following which you celebrate the holiday of Shavuos. What was the background, the historical background of this mitzvah? On the second day of Pesach, the 16th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, there was an obligation to bring a special offering from barley. The representatives for the Beis HaMikdash would go to a field, a farm of barley. They would harvest the new grain, the new barley that grew during this new spring season and was ripe by Pesach. And 
they harvested this grain, this barley. They would process the barley until it was ground. It would, they grind the barley, the kernels of the barley, into flour. Very, very fine flour. They would put it through a sifter, through a sieve, 13 times until all of the sediments were removed and the flour, the barley flour, was very fine. This was brought to the Holy Temple, to the Beis HaMikdash, where it was processed. The Kayan, the priest, would then take a fistful of flour. We call this a kmitza. He would fill up much of his fist with the barley flour. This is what it looked like. And this flour was placed on the altar, on the Mizbeach, where it was consumed by the flames of the altar. How much flour did you need for this offering? The measurement is called in Hebrew an oimer. An oimer is basically the volume of how much flour, which was the volume of 43.2 eggs. That was the measurement of flour that was needed. So after they grinded the kernels into flour, they needed this volume, this measurement called oimer. That's why it's called the carbon oimer. Oimer, ayin vav mem resh, or O-M-E-R, is a measurement of how much flour. Again, the volume of 43.2 eggs. And a fistful of this was taken by the kayan, burnt on the altar, and then the rest of the flour was baked. It was baked as matzah. This is Pesach. Actually, most of the meal grains throughout the year were matzah. It was baked as matzah, and the kayanim would eat it. This was called the carbon oimer. When was it brought? It was brought the first thing in the morning of the second day of Pesach, the 16th of Nisan. After that, all the new produce, all the new crop that you had in your field, whether it was barley or wheat, or spelt, or oats, or rye. All the new crop, all the new grain, was now permitted, permissible to eat. This is called the chadash, the new grain that grew. So the Torah says, hashabbos. From the day after the first day of Yom Tif, Pesach has one day in Eretz Yisrael, the day after you should start counting, from the day that you bring, this offering called the Oimer, this measurement of barley flour, from that day you start counting. So they would start counting from that day, actually the night before, that was day one, and you count for seven weeks, 49 days, following which you have the 50th day of Shavuos. But what we see here is that the Torah talks about two forms of counting. It speaks about counting seven weeks and counting 49 days. It says, You should count seven weeks. In the next verse it says, You should count up to 50 days. So it enumerates two counts, a count of weeks and a count of days. Also later in Parshas Re'eh it's going to say, You should count seven weeks. Hence, Abaya teaches us in the Talmud, there is a mitzvah to count days, and there is a mitzvah to count weeks. And that's why both are done. So you say today is day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, but that's not enough. Hayoyim shiva yamim shaheim shavua echad la'oymer. Today is seven days, which constitutes one week. And the next day will be day eight, which constitutes a week, and a day. 
And then you'll hit day 14, Hayoim Arba, so today is 14 days, Shame, Shnei Shavu Oislaimer, two weeks. Why the need for both? Because the Torah specifies two counts. It speaks about counting seven weeks, but it also says to count up to 50 days. So we do both. We count the days, and we also count the unit of weeks, as explained. Yet, when we think about it, it seems strange. Why is the Torah adamant that we count both days and weeks simultaneously? One of these counts seems completely superfluous and unnecessary. What do we gain by counting the weeks after we have already counted the days? What would be missing if we left out the weeks? Or conversely, if we left out the days? Why can't we just say, today is seven days to the Oimer? If you want to figure out how many weeks, you'll do the math yourself. It's not so difficult to know that seven days constitutes a week. And nine days constitutes a week in two days. And ten days is a week in three days. You could figure that out on your own. Or conversely, stick to the weeks. Say, today is one week to the Oimer. Today is three weeks to the Oimer. Today is three weeks and a day to the Oimer. One does not have to be a genius to figure out the weeks from the days or the days from the weeks. And yet, the Torah enumerates both counts. And hence, Abaya tells us, Mitzvah lemimne yoimi, Mitzvah lemimne shavu. It's a mitzvah to count the days and it's a mitzvah to count the weeks. There's another very interesting, perplexing issue here. And that has to do with the nature of the obligation itself. As I said, the Torah connects the mitzvah of counting with the offering of barley grain, barley flour brought on that second day of Pesach. That's why we call it Sviras HaOimer, the counting of the Oimer. Ask a regular person, why is it called the counting of the Oimer? So, the answer should be clear by now. The Oimer is a measurement of flour, and we began counting from that day when we offered that measurement of flour as an offering to God. Again, a small part of it burnt on the altar, and the other part of it was eaten by the Kayanim. So the Oimer is the volume of the flour that was prepared. As we said, the volume of Mem Gimel Beitzim V'chamech so the volume of 432 Eggs. That's why the Torah says, you do it from the day that you brought the Oimer Hatnufa. So now here is the question. Today, we don't have the Beis HaMikdash. We don't bring this offering anymore. We don't have the ability to bring this offering. So here is the question. Are we still mandated to do this count? Is this count called Sviras HaOimer? dependent on the offering. If there's no offering, there's no mitzvah to count, because you're counting from the day that they brought the sacrifice. But if there's no offering, there's no mitzvah to count. The count is part of the offering. So without the oimer, without the physical offering, are we still obligated to count the seven-week period? And the answer, as you may have guessed probably, is that there is an argument there is a dispute among the great sages. 
And the two major personalities in this dispute, is on one side stands the Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, who was born in Spain, escaped to Morocco, to the Holy Land, and then to Egypt, where he lived for the remainder of his years. On the other side, you have the view known as the view of Toysvus, which was, the Toysvus constituted the sages from the house of Rashi, who lived in France during the 12th and 13th century. The Rambam is of the opinion, and the same opinion is shared by the Sefer HaChinuch and the Ravya, that the mitzvah to count is not dependent on the physical offering itself. So even today, we still have a biblical commandment to count 49 days between Pesach and Shavuos. However, Toysvus and most halachic authorities, including the view that is articulated in Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, in the Laws of Sphiris Ha'ima, which is Erechayim section, Tav Pei Tes 489, maintain that the biblical mitzvah of counting is directly dependent on the actual Oimer offering. Hence today, they argue, there is no biblical mitzvah to count anymore, because there's no carbon. Why then do we count? And they say the rabbis instituted this as a rabbinic commandment, Zecher Lemiktash. There are many commandments that they instituted in order to commemorate, in order to remember, in order to remain connected to the consciousness and to the lifestyle during the time of the Holy Temple. And this is one of those mitzvahs that the rabbis initiated. There are many rabbinic mitzvahs that are not biblical mitzvahs. For example, lighting the Shabbos candles is a rabbinic mitzvah. Washing our hands before we eat bread is a rabbinic mitzvah. Saying Halal and Rishchidosh is a rabbinic mitzvah. Reading the Megillah on Purim is a rabbinic mitzvah. Lighting Hanukkah candles is a rabbinic mitzvah. There was no Hanukkah during biblical times. Drinking four cups of wine on the night of Pesach is a rabbinic mitzvah. Reclining at the Pesach Seder, just another example, is a rabbinic mitzvah. Davening three times a day, Shachris, and then Mincha, and then Mairif, which men are obligated in, is a rabbinic mitzvah. Even if the kernel of tefillah of davening is a biblical mitzvah, according to the Ram. According to this view, counting of the Oymer is a rabbinic commandment. Zecher lemikdash. A commemoration for the Beis HaMikdash. It's not what we call a mitzvah de'oyraisa, which is a full-fledged biblical commandment. It's called a mitzvah medirabonon, or a mitzvah medivrei soifrim, which commemorates the mitzvah the way it was fulfilled in the time of the Beis HaMikdash. Which explains why right after we make the blessing and we count, what do we say right after that? A special prayer. Harachamon hu yachzir lono avoidas Beis HaMikdash. May God restore to us the service in the Holy Temple speedily in our days. Amen for eternity. We just did a mitzvah. Why are we saying now a special prayer? The answer is because since according to many halachic views it's not a biblical mitzvah. It's only a rabbinic mitzvah. Why? Because we don't have the carbon, the actual offering. So right after we do the mitzvah, the verbal mitzvah of counting, we pray 
that you should restore the Avodah's Beis Hamidr so we could do the full-fledged mitzvah, the biblical mitzvah, not only the rabbinic mitzvah, the way it was done in the days of yore when they brought the carbon Omer. So it's two different opinions in Allah. As I told you, one side you have the Rambam, the Chinuch, and others. The other side you have Taisvis and the Shulchan Aruch, who maintain that it's a rabbinic mitzvah of Sfiris Aimer, where the Rambam says, no, it's two separate things. It's still a biblical mitzvah today. Even though you can't bring the carbon, you could still count. There is, however, a third opinion. <laughs> of course. The third opinion is a lone, we call it a lone opinion. Fascinating intriguing, and it comes from a 13th century French and Spanish great sage known as Rabbeinu Yeruchim. Rabbeinu Yeruchim was one of the great Rishonim who was born approximately 1290 in France, and when the Jews were expelled from France, completely expelled from France in the early 1300s, he obviously left France, he moved to Spain, he became one of the um, one of the great sages in Spain. And Rabbeinu Yeruchim wrote a halachic work known as Toldos Adam Vechava, which means literally the offspring of Adam and Chava. And there, Rabbeinu Yeruchim, who lived at the end of the 1200s and in the 1300s, 14th century, first in France and then in Spain, introduces a new halachic view. And to appreciate his halachic view, you have to be sensitive to nuance, so you can understand his view. I'll tell you what his view is, and then I'll tell you the source of it, the origin of it. He has a fascinating proposition, and he says, the count of the days remains biblical even today. The count of the weeks is only rabbinic today. It's not biblical. So he makes a distinction between the two counts. What's the logic behind this? He says, take a look in the Pasuk. When the Pasuk speaks about weeks, it always associates it with the offering. But when it speaks about days, it speaks of the count of days independent of the offering. So take the verse in Parshas Emmer, Usfartem lachem mimacharas hashabas, from the day that you bring the carbon, count seven weeks. So to count weeks, you need the carbon. But then in the next verse, it just says, You should count up to 50 days, not connecting it explicitly with the offering. Later in Parshas Re'e, it will say, Shiva Shavua is Tisparlachme Hachel Kermes Bakama. You should count the seven weeks from when you take the sickle and you harvest the crop. That's when you begin counting seven weeks. Rabbeinu Yeruchim says the two counts have different halachic criteria. The count of the weeks is dependent on the offering of the Omer that you brought in the Beis Amikdash. When there was an offering brought on the second day of Pesach, he had a mitzvah to count seven weeks. When there's no offering anymore because the Mikdash was destroyed, the Torah doesn't mandate you to count weeks. But it still mandates you to count days. Day one, day seven, day eight, day 16, day 23, day 29, day 33, day 49, without weeks. The rabbis came and said, even today we should still count weeks 
week one, week two, week three. Why? As a memory for the Beis HaMikdush. But biblically, we only have to count days today. So we have three completely different halachic views. We have Rambam on one side who says everything is a biblical mandate today. Counting the days and counting the weeks, just as it was in the days of yore, because the count and the offering are not dependent on each other. And thus, we still have a biblical mandate to do Sviras Haimer. On the other side, you have Tosvas and others who say the entire count is a rabbinic mitzvah, it's a rabbinic obligation to remember the Beis HaMikdush and the consciousness and the awareness and the mitzvah of then. But today, we are not biblically mandated to count both days and weeks. And then comes the intermediary view of Rabbeinu Yeruchim who says days still retain their biblical power. And when I count the days of Sphere Simon, I'm not doing a rabbinic mitzvah. I'm doing what's called a mitzvah da'iraisa, a mitzvah of Torah. But the weeks, that I can't do anymore. Torah, I have no obligation. The rabbis introduced that as a zecher la mikdash. Which, when we think about his opinion, it becomes really strange. How are we to understand the rationale behind this? Is there a real difference between saying today is 28 days of the Omer or saying today is four weeks of the Omer? Like, what's the big difference? If I say today is 28 days, what happened? I fulfilled a biblical mitzvah. If I say today is four weeks, no, 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 that's not the mitzvah. You don't fulfill the mitzvah that way. It's a rabbinic commandment. How can we make sense of this distinction? The days are a biblical mandate, the weeks are a rabbinic mandate. Now, to be sure, he offers convincing proof from the text of the Torah, but that only transfers the question onto the Torah. What would be the logic to command the Jewish people today in exile to count only days and not weeks? If the count is valuable, count days and weeks, count weeks and not days. We say no. In exile, days and no weeks. And in the Holy Temple, it's days and weeks. So one can say, it's what the Torah says. <laughs> Don't ask questions. But as the Rambam teaches us, <laughs> Much of Torah allows itself to be appreciated, to be understood, to be internalized, to glean great lessons from it. What then? can be the rationale behind the view of Rabbeinu Yerucham. You see, the views of the Rambam and Taisvis are clear. Either the entire obligation is a biblical, or the entire obligation is rabbinic. I can deal with that. But the split that Rabbeinu Yerucham suggests seems deeply enigmatic, even absurd. Why would the Torah make this differentiation? Why would it deny us the opportunity to count weeks during exile, but still obligate us to count days during the exile. Here we will discover once again how nuances in Jewish law, in halacha, embody profound ideas, values, and truths in life. Just as a tiny, tiny change in a DNA molecule translates 
into profoundly dramatic and significant changes in the entire organism it inhabits. Zois Adam. It's true about a tiny change in a DNA molecule. One that you need an extraordinary microscope to be able even to begin to perceive, and even then you won't always perceive it. It's true in the biology of the, any organism, and it's true in the cosmic biological structure called Torah. Sometimes a little nuance in Jewish law. It would seem not very valuable and significant, but it embodies an enormously significant and profound idea and truth in life. For this, we need to excavate a bit the mystery of the days and of the weeks. What does it mean to count days? What does it mean to count weeks? After this whole backdrop, I hope you can understand what we began with the Gemara in Menachah 66. Abaya said it's a mitzvah to count days and weeks. The rabbis in the yeshiva of Rabbi Asher used to count days and weeks. Amemar counted days and not weeks because he said, today the whole obligation is rabbinic, it's only Zecher Lamikdash, as Rashi explains, and therefore he only counted the days. What is the mystery of days and weeks? Why did they confer so much significance on making this distinction between days and weeks when we're talking about numbers? And numbers of days that are passing, whether you count them or not, whether you're aware of their passage or not, time moves. Is there really such profound significance to this count and to the count of days and weeks? If one doesn't understand the depth of this, it can really seem quite strange. We know, and it's printed in most of the prayer books in the section of Sphere Saimer, that the heart the soul of every human being is comprised of seven basic character traits, seven basic characteristics, and the seven weeks of the counting of the Omer parallel these seven characteristics. Their names are published in most prayer books in the section of Sviris HaOmer. Each week we focus on one of them, and their names are Chesed, Gvura, Tiferes, Netzach, Hoid, Yisoid and Malchus. We are right now presently in the week when we focus on Netzach. An English tra- one English translation of these seven is Chesed is love, kindness. Gvura is discipline, restraint, strength, boundaries. Tiferes is beauty, empathy, harmony. Netzach is victory. Like Linatseach, Nitzachon, victory, ambition, Haid, like Lahodot, is humility, gratitude, surrender, submission, acknowledging mistakes. Yisoid is bonding, communicativity. Malchus is leadership, royalty, regality, kingship, confidence. Selflessness. The count of seven weeks then is not just a count of seven weeks, Sheva Shabbosos, but Judaism designates a period of the year for what I would call communal therapy. There is individual therapy that you do any day of the year, but there is a process called communal therapy. 
communal therapy. And that's what Sphira Sa'imer really is. It's when the community gathers together and together focuses on working each week on one of these dimensions of the self. It's a process when we are summoned individually and collectively to go through a process of healing, of recovery, of renewal of our inner self, step by step, issue by issue, emotion by emotion. So each one of the seven weeks we focus on one of the seven emotions in our lives, examining it, tuning into it, refining it, fixing it, repairing it, enhancing it, aligning it with the divine seven emotions. As we say in the Pasuk in Divri Hayamim, L'cha Hashem HaGedula, V'HaGevura, V'Hatif Eres, V'HaNetzach, V'Yahoyt, K'chol B'Shamayim Avaris, L'cha Hashem HaMamlacha. We align our seven with their ultimate core, with the divine seven. So the first week of the counting, the first seven days, we focus on the quality of love in our life. Chesed. Do I know how to express love? Do I know how to emote with love? Do I know how to receive love? Do I know how to love? The second week, we focus on something else. Gvura. We focus on our capacity for creating boundaries. Do I know how to create and maintain proper borders in our life? You can raise your hand if the answer is yes. Do you know how to create and maintain proper boundaries in your life. The third week we focus on what we call tiferes, our ability for empathy. Do I know how to empathize? Do you know how to empathize? Do I know how to be here for somebody else on their terms, not on my terms? Anybody? Okay, the fourth week, this week, is netzach. What's our focus this week? We focus on our capacity to triumph in the face of adversity. Do I know how to win? Do I have ambition? Do I have ambitions in my life? Do I know how to face adversity and overcome it without ducking, submitting, and surrendering? The fifth week, we focus on something else. It's called hoid. My ability to express gratitude. Do I know how to express gratitude? Do I know how to show vulnerability? Do I know how to admit mistakes? Do I know how to really say thank you to somebody? Do I know how to be vulnerable in the presence of somebody else? Do I know how to really apologize? That's a very different quality than Netzach. That's the quality of Hoyt. The sixth week, Yisoyt, we focus on our ability to communicate and to bond. The seventh week, we focus on our skill as leaders. Malchus. Am I confident enough to lead? Do I know how to lead? Do I possess inner confidence and inner dignity and an inner sense of malchus, of value? But there's two mitzvahs. There's a mitzvah to count days and there's a mitzvah to count weeks. What's the difference? Each of the seven weeks is divided further into seven days. Each of these seven traits is expressed in our lives in so many different ways. So even though there are seven basic character traits, 
seven building blocks of the soul, but each one is manifested functionally or dysfunctionally, constructively or destructively, in so many diverse ways, in different thoughts, in different words, in different actions. So that's why we don't only count the week. We also further count seven days within each week. As we say in the Sphira, the first week, there is Chesed, Shabbat Chesed. There is Gvura, Shabbat Chesed. There is Tiferes, Shabbat Chesed. This week, for example, there is Chesed, Shabbat Gvura, Shabbat Tiferes, Shabbat What are all these things? There is Netzach, Shabbat Ambition, or the ability to triumph in the face of adversity, could be expressed in so many different ways. And so many different, has so many different manifestations. Do I know, for example, how to express my ambitions kindly? Do I know how to create boundaries to my victories and my ambitions? Today, do I have empathy in my victories? I may have won, but can I forever be empathetic? to another perspective, to another side. Netzach Shebenetzach. Do I know how to fight for what I have to fight for? And so on and so forth. So each one of these attributes, each one of these character traits, has so many diverse nuances through which it trickles down in day-to-day life. So you have the weak represents the core of the emotion. One week it's chesed, one week it's Gvura, one week it's Tiferes, one week it's Netzach, Hoid Yisoyed Malchus. This week, victory, ambition. That's the core. But the individual days of the week represent the detail, the details trickling down of this core emotion into the day-to-day behaviors, into my schedule, into my interactions, my daily interactions in a very individual fashion. So, the count of the weeks represents focusing on the core emotion. That's represented by the week. It's a full emotion that goes for seven weeks. The counting of the days is the way I focus on the actual details, the nuances of how those emotions are expressed in my life. So when I say, today is one week to the Oymer, What am I saying? On an emotional or psychological level, what I'm saying is, today I managed, or I'm trying, to tune in to the full scope of my experience or inability to experience love. Transforming it, repairing it, healing it at its core. At its core. That's what today is one week. Today is two weeks means I managed or I tried to tune in to the very core of my experience of boundaries and try to heal all of those dysfunctional dynamics which may be compromising that experience all the way at its core. That's what the count of the weeks represents. You know, every once in a while... You'll hear, you'll read some extraordinary story about somebody who was struggling with an addiction 
or a trauma for many years, and they discovered one day a deep insight, or perhaps they went to some therapeutic weekend, or they went to some retreat for a week, or they found some great healer, or nutritionist, or acupuncturist, or energy expert, and somehow he or she opened up all the blockages, and they emerged as a new human being. A child was born. Somehow that person or the program of the insight touched and penetrated such a deep core within themselves that this person now maintains or claims that they've been transformed. The trauma is gone or serious, or much of it is gone or the addiction is gone or the anger is gone or the jealousy is gone. Literally like a child who one day actually embraces the fact that it's time to be toilet trained. And at that point, he rejects, hopefully for the rest of his life or her life, the idea of doing it in a different way. You just discover this new way of living, and the old way is out the window. There is no challenge any longer. The child at last has matured to a certain degree, to a specific degree. And sometimes a person will say, I have managed to count my weeks. I transformed this particular emotion, completely weeding out and uprooting all of the distortions. They say that there was an Amish boy who was visiting a mall together with his father. And they grew up in Amish land and Amish culture. And they were amazed by almost everything they saw. But specifically, they were astounded by two shiny silver walls that could move apart. And then the two walls could come back together again. The boy asked the father, what are these two shiny silver walls separating and coming back? And the father says, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I really don't know what it is. So they decide that they will stand there and observe what happens. So they're standing wide-eyed, eyes fully open, mesmerized by the scene, watching an old lady in a wheelchair being rolled up to these moving walls. She presses a button. Sure enough, the two walls open. The lady rolled between them into some small room. The doors, the walls close. And the boy and the father are watching these small circles of lights with numbers above the walls light up. They can't believe what they're seeing, but they continue to watch these circles light up in a reverse direction, up and then down. And sure enough, the walls open up and a beautiful young 24-year-old, healthy, steps out. And the father looks at the boy and says, go get your mother. So, sometimes, sometimes, people will describe their lives about it. Sometimes people will describe their lives in the same way. Reflect on a moment, perhaps, that has completely transformed you. A moment, an encounter, an experience that changed you as a person. Something maybe that was once so difficult, 
And today it comes with ease. It's not an issue at all. Something that you used to be so anxious about. For some people, it's maybe social anxiety. And then one day, as a result of something you're aware of or not, it's gone. Or something else that was so excruciatingly painful, and now you don't even blink. For some people, it's maybe when they quit smoking, and now they don't even have a temptation. For some people, it's complimenting another person, complimenting their spouse, complimenting a friend, complimenting their mother, complimenting your child. Perhaps you were very insecure, very shy, very apathetic, lazy. Something that was so difficult, and you take a moment and you reflect on it, and you say thanks, and you appreciate the gift of transformation. But here is where frustration sets in. Because we are often led to believe that these things are common. That there are elevators where you go in and you pay a few bucks and you go up and you come back down and you come out and you're a new person. There are many gurus, healers, programs, books, seminars, workshops, Teachers who promise this. And the ads are so tempting. And the design is so flashy and psychologically appealing that you're made to feel that if I can only join this, I will emerge as a new person. Sometimes there are experiences that really change people and transform them completely, but these are unique and rare experiences. All too often, the bark is bigger than the bite. And the drama and fanfare of what you're going to get is far more dramatic than what you actually get. Now, sometimes you're dealing with people who really don't have any goods. And after one, two, three, five, ten times, you see you were just duped. But even when we're not dealing with charlatans or, let's say, truly ignorant people, but rather with people of some substance and depth, we often come back to our regular lives on a high. The elevator opened up and I'm a new person, only to discover a week later or two weeks later, or a month later or maybe six months later. Translation... Okay, I'll translate what she said. Don't blame it on me. The same yenta with a different cut. Thank you. <laughs> Got it. In other words, yeah. And it could get very frustrating for people. Very, very annoying. Sometimes very discouraging. I did went here, and I went here, and I went there, and everyone promised me after this weekend you're going to be a new person. tug. How do you say that? <laughs> These are Yiddish expressions that our grandmothers developed over a thousand years. I don't know how to translate, but basically it means nishgeshtoygen and nishgeflygen. That English, is that English? It basically means it never happened, it never will happen. And what we're failing to appreciate is that counting of the Omer is not only the week model. It's also the day model. That's the significance of the day model versus the week model. 
This is the model that belongs to each of us every day and every moment of the day. I'm not always capable of the weak model. Sometimes I am, but sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm not really capable of the weak model. But I am always capable of the day model. And what does the day model mean? There's no magic. There's no great transformation. I don't look in the mirror and I say, everything dysfunctional, everything traumatic, everything undesirable has been rooted out for all of eternity. I am a new human being. The urges may be there. The temptations may be there. The dysfunction may be there. The pain may be there. The trauma may be there. The addictions may be there. The negative emotions may be ever-present. The promiscuous cravings. And add any other adjective you would add based on your own awareness and your therapist's advice, to the list. What I do manage is, I manage to refine the day. Meaning, I learn how to control where and how this emotion will be expressed in the details of my life. I may not have the ability to redefine the very core of the issue. I may not be able to go into my system and literally create a transformation. People do cosmetic surgery with the hope that they're going to become new people. Again in Yiddish, The spiritual surgery to be able to create a new person, create genetic mutations, go into my genetic level and take out the genes I don't like. Play with the DNA. I'm talking here on a psychological, emotional, slash spiritual level. I may not have the ability to redefine the very essence of the issues I'm struggling with. I can't create, recreate the entire week. But I can still choose how it will be channeled or not channeled in the details of my life. And this is where... Real healing is available to everybody always. Because if I go away to that weekend, or this person, or this program, or this book, what I'm hoping for is not always complete transformation. What I'm hoping for is awareness. And awareness, we spoke many times with the Gemara, says, If there's no das, there's no perception, you could never create separation, Havdalah. That's why the text for Havdalah is in which blessing in Shemayna Esra? Atachoynein la'adam da'as. Why? Says the Yerushalmi, Havdalah. To separate. To choose. What is choice if not Havdalah? All choice is Havdalah. Separation. I choose this versus this. Can only come if there's da'as if there's true perception, if there's true awareness. What does this awareness look like? What does this awareness look like? This awareness looks like, I'll go back to the metaphor that I used, uh, I think it was last week. What was last week about? Kedoshim, right? Talmud I'm going to use the same metaphor because I think it gives a very accurate description of this. I'm driving a car, I approach a red light, I have someone in the back seat screaming, take the red light, we're going to miss the chuppah, just 
do it. <laughs> the guy is screaming right in my ear. The screaming is loud and annoying. I cannot shut that person up. He's been there for 30 years. I can't. You know the story, Rabbi Eisel Kharif, he was a very sharp Jew. His wife was sharper. And uh, Erev Pesach in the morning, she says, Eisel, did you already get rid of the chametz from your house? So he says, most of it. But there's one piece of chametz in my house. <clears throat> it's been around for many, many years. It's been around 41 years. That I didn't get rid of. She says, that piece of chametz you don't have to worry about. 41 years ago, my father sold it to a complete guy. You're good. This voice, this voice, this is male humor, sorry. This voice has been, (laughs) but it's funny. This voice has been screaming in your ear for many, many years. I can't just get rid of it. But here's the deal. Here is the deal. Imagine I tell you, I can drive safely because there's a voice. You could drive safely. Thank God you have the steering wheel. Because you have the steering wheel, no amount of screaming or convincing can make you take the light unless you choose to. But in order to understand this, you have to understand one thing. That the backseat driver screaming is not the voice of truth. It's not the voice of sanity. It's not the true value of where you want to go and how you want to go and when you want to go. Because you know that the screamer is an alien voice to yourself. He's a stranger and he is behind this ludicrous and strange idea to take a red light, especially when there's a hundred cars coming the other way. You may not be able to stop the screaming, but you can identify it as an alien voice and thus quarantine it, putting it in the context where it belongs as basically a strange voice which happens to be stupid as well. But imagine if when hearing the voice, take the red light or make a left, and making a left will basically take you to California when you got to get to the city. But imagine you decide that that voice is your own rational mind speaking to you. It's your intelligence speaking to you. Then it becomes much harder to say no. So what's the choice? The choice is to say no only because you can become aware of what you own, what is truly yours, what you want to identify with as your most beloved self, and what is a voice that you have to deal with. The challenge is that the backseat driver is not sitting in the backseat. The backseat driver in life is sitting right here. And that's why... To make a choice, you have to have more das. So even if I am experiencing something and I'm right now being emotionally hijacked by my trauma or by my abuse or by difficult stuff I have to deal with, I still have the wheel in my hand. I may not have the ability to transform my urge. I may not have the ability to stop the screaming or speaking of certain thoughts, chatter, voices, emotions, experiences. But as long as I can identify, this thought is not my essence. It's coming from a part of me that doesn't represent my best self. It comes from a part of me that suffers from insecurity or a lot of fear or a lot of unwholesomeness because of certain experiences. 
It doesn't matter that I don't have the ability to transform all sides of myself. What matters most is that I choose which side of myself I want to right now entrust to the steering wheel of life. How do I want to react? How do I want to react to my wife, to my husband, to my son, to my daughter, to my friend, to my boss, to my partner, to my father, to my mother, to my sister, to my brother, to the stranger? That is a choice I make based on choosing which self is going to play itself out and emerge. It will dictate my behavior, my words, my actions. I received an email from a woman. She's a very, very intelligent person. A writer. Extremely skilled and talented writer. She struggles with depression and with suicidal thoughts. She's a mother of children. And she wrote to me recently this email that was inspired by a class she heard of mine on the yeshiva.net and she wrote this. I quote, almost verbatim. I always believed, Rabbi Jacobson, that when I have my suicidal urges, I am not in control. After all, suicide urges aren't something I could bring up at will. They are usually triggered and usually the trigger is so powerful Because for these suicide ideas to surface with so much vengeance and oomph, it happens as a trigger that I can't expect and therefore can't stop or initiate. But this time around, based on this teaching that she was referring to, which was similar to what I'm sharing now, I realized that thoughts were just that. Thoughts. I realized that thoughts were just that. Thoughts. And it's we who choose if to engage the thoughts and define ourselves by them or not. My greatest challenge was that when thoughts came into me, they replaced my entire personality. And in my mind, that is who I am. That is the only I I knew of. The I of my thoughts. How refreshing it was to learn that throughout the book of Tanya, the Baal Tanya always refers to thoughts as garments of the soul. Levushe hanefesh. Never as the soul. And you explained, why a garment? What do you do with a garment? What happens in the morning? You put on an outfit. You look in the mirror, you don't like what it looks like. What do you do? You change it. But imagine you say, Oi, I am ugly forever. I am grotesque forever. It's like the story in Chelm. It was a fellow, and this is not from the letter, this is my, uh, my Rashi and Taisvis. <laughs> it triggers my own idea, so I'm going to get back to her letter. But there was a Jew from Chelm, and you know they have all these Chelm stories because the Jews of Chelm were brilliant and everybody else was jealous. So how do we deal with jealousy? We make up stories about the people we're jealous of. That's what we still do, so that's the fate of Chelm. And uh, so they tell, but they have some good stories. So there was a Jew of Chelem driving on a train and he tells the conductor, it's an all-night journey, I want to go to sleep. I have to get out 4 o'clock in the morning when you stop at this and this station. If you could please wake me up. You're up anyway. He says, of course. And the Jew of Chelem goes to sleep. He removes his garments and he falls asleep in the cabin. Little does he know that nearby in the cabin there was a Russian general who also went to sleep. 
quarter to four in the morning, the conductor wakes him up. It's pitch dark in the cabin. And he gets up and he puts on his clothes. But instead of putting on his clothes, he puts on the clothes of the Russian general. He comes home. And his wife sees him. Chaim Yainkel? Bist Meshigah? Chaim Yainkel, you're all right? Is everything fine? He says, why? Why do you say? He says, you look so different. He says, oh, I lost weight probably, yeah? You know what every man thinks. She says, no, no, why don't you take a look in the mirror? Takes a look in the mirror and he sees, psh, a Russian general, dressed to kill, a machaya, you know, the real generals, their attire, something special, flawless, impeccable, quite appealing, representing a lot of might and prowess. And she turns to her, his wife, he turns to his wife and says, ah, I always knew that these Russian conductors were shlima zolim. They were idiots. They were morons. She says, why? He says, he woke up the Russian general instead of me. But this is the story of so many people's lives. They look at their clothes, and this is who they are. And it's not just physical clothes. It's also physical clothes. Sometimes people get so obsessed with their uniforms and clothes that it becomes a substitute for their personality. And the moment, clothes are important, very important. <laughs> but moment clothes become more important than your eye, then who, then the person is, in, is, is not in a good place. So machshava is always defined as the levushim of the soul. I don't like my outfit. Who told you to wear it? Take it off. Take it off. What holds me back from changing my jacket? I'm lazy. That's it. I could. Don't say I can't. I could. The Baal Shem Tov was once giving a lesson, a shir in Mezhebush in his shul in the Ukraine. And a Ukrainian peasant, a Ukrainian peasant was driving a horse and buggy and the horse and the buggy fell into a ditch and it was a winter cold day in the Ukraine, fell into the mud. And he saw a bunch of students sitting in Mezhebush and he opened the window and he puts in his head and in Ukrainian he says, could somebody please come out five minutes? Help me take out my poor horse from the quagmire. But the Baal is in the middle of teaching. So what do Jews like to say? They turn around and they say, we can't. So he gave a scream through the window. He gave a scream in Ukraine. He said, You can. You don't want. So the Baal stopped the lesson. And he said, this is the lesson of today. And this is the lesson of life. You can. You don't want. I could take off my dirty jacket. If I hate what it looks like, take it off. The problem is that my thoughts become me. The moment my thoughts become me, how can I take them off? This is me. Unless I go into surgery and I start removing my limbs and my organs. Your thoughts don't constitute your essence. Your thoughts are just that, thoughts. So she continues and she says to me, she writes in her email, I realize thoughts were just that thoughts. And it's we who choose if to engage the thoughts and define ourselves by them. We choose if to act on our thoughts or not. We choose to embrace those thoughts and say, this is genuinely a description of who I am. Or we look at those thoughts and we say, yes, it's part of my journey. It's part of my struggle. It's part of my condition." But I don't have to choose to define myself by these thoughts. However, it's not easy thinking new thoughts when the old familiar thoughts tell you that suicide is the only answer. 
And here comes what I consider to be a profoundly valuable observation. If the only thing people learned was not to be afraid of their experience, that alone would change the world. If the only thing people learned was not to be afraid of their inner experience, that alone would change the world. But what happens so often is, I have an inner experience and it's so mighty powerful. It terrifies me. It overwhelms me. And I become like a little mouse in its presence and forfeit everything else. You define every thought. No thought defines you. Just like you decide what you put on and you decide what you take off and you decide when to put it on and take it off. Even if it feels so stuck to my body, it's a garment. It's a lavush. The moment I could look at my urges, my temptations, my trauma, my outburst, anything I'm going through, my brokenness, I could look it in the eye and say, hey, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not terrified of you. You are a thought. You are a feeling. You are a sensation. You are an experience. I even understand you. I even respect you. And I even know why you're here, my dear backseat screamer. I even know why you're here. You're here to make me human. You're here to make me the person I'm supposed to become. We have an effect. That moment gained control over our life. We may have not counted the week, but we counted the day. And the word here is counting. Because how do you say counting in Hebrew? Sphira. What does Sphira really mean? One of the stones in the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol was called Sapir, Sapphire, which means it shines. Usfartem lachem means you should make the seven weeks shine. You should make the 49 days shine. There is making the week shine and there is making the day shine. And the two are very, very different. A fellow once came to see me. He would come to my classes. And he described to me a struggle he has. He works very hard and he comes home late. And every single day he gets a text from his wife. And the text reads the same. When are you coming home? Question mark, exclamation point. With another question mark. He immediately experiences a thought that produces anger, frustration. What's the thought he experiences? And I give him credit that he was aware of this. Because most people just feel the anger. They don't know the thought that precedes the anger. And therefore they don't have mastery over it. And the thought is, will she ever appreciate how hard I work? Does she think all these credit cards get covered automatically? The mortgage is a gift from Uncle Sam. And her father pays tuition. What does she think I'm doing in the office, in his words? Sitting on a hammock and drinking pina colada? Can't she just leave me alone? But, who is responsible for that anger? He would say, it's the text. It has nothing to do with the text. It's how he processed the text. And if he learns that, he could process it differently. By taking a deep breath, 
watching the thought and the anger that just flared up. And then saying, wait, maybe this is my response because I grew up in a home with somebody who was a control freak. And therefore I'm again feeling controlled and manipulated and I'm going crazy. Or maybe another thousand reasons that I know or I don't know. But all she did was she asked me when I'm coming home. I told him, I'm looking at her text and I'll tell you how you can interpret it. She's basically saying, I miss you so, so much. This house feels so empty without you. My life is so devoid of the stamina and the camaraderie and the friendship and the love that I yearn for. And when I will see your face by that door, I will say hollow. I will erupt in ecstasy and joy. And the romance will flow from my lips like milk and honey. Okay, not so dramatic. Okay, so maybe he should come home and have a lovely conversation with his wife and ask her to rephrase the texts if that's what he needs to heal him and soothe him. That's a perfectly fine conversation. But what allows for such a conversation is the awareness and the differentiation between my garments and me. Without that differentiation, I become trapped. I become stuck. Do I know if this husband is going to be transformed through and through and his whole childhood would be redefined? Maybe yes, maybe not. But you don't need that to have a good relationship. You don't need that to have a great marriage. You don't need that to live a wholesome and meaningful life. So, what does it mean to make the day shine? To make the day shine doesn't mean I tackle the core of the emotion. I don't have to. What it means is I tackle the way that emotion is expressing itself. The way it's dictating how I speak to my child, how I speak to you, how I teach my class, how I deal with this issue, how I go about my day-to-day life, minute-to-minute, second-to-second, hour-by-hour, day-by-day. I will not allow the toxic image of myself, whatever that toxic image is, to define me. The moment I identify where that emotion came from, I'm good. Identify where it came from, and then I can choose to put it in its context, let it be what it is, but don't let it define me. It's part of me, it's part of me, but it's not all of me. It's the guy in the back seat of my chest screaming, take the light. I once read that the biographer of Sir Winston Churchill wrote something that he heard from Churchill. He claimed that the doctor of Churchill heard this from Churchill. I know it's been disputed, but the insight is certainly a marvelous insight, and some argue that it's actually very true. Winston Churchill, as you know, was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, appointed in the year 1940, as Hitler was planning the complete annexation of Europe, including Great Britain. Before Roosevelt was in the war, before Stalin was in the war, Winston Churchill was the one leader of the free West to stand up to Adolf Hitler. And according to natural circumstances, he is from the few personalities who saved the world from Nazi tyranny. But Winston Churchill had a traumatized youth. I'm not going to get into his whole story, 
His father has traumatized him. His relationship with his parents, father was very, very complicated, and other factors in his life. As you know, great smoker, great drinker, great eater, and Sir Winston Churchill suffered from depression. His biographer writes that Churchill said that the way he dealt with his depression was he came to see his depression as a black dog. A black dog that accompanies him wherever he goes. And those of you who have grown up in homes with dogs, or have a dog, or had a dog, know that the dog follows you sometimes everywhere. Even private places. You go on the couch, dog comes on the couch, you get into bed, the dog decides to sleep with you, you go into the private room of knees, and the dog is there. He says, that's my depression, my black dog, it accompanies me everywhere, and it barks very, very loudly. But Churchill's insight, he said, changed his life. Because the black dog is black, it's dark, it's bleak, it barks, but it's not me. It's my dog. Sometimes it will be quiet for 10 minutes, and then it'll start barking, which is the depression, starting to tell me again how miserable my life is. It's a dog barking. Thoughts are just that. Thoughts. Never be afraid of your experiences because the genesis of defeat is fear. And to quote his contemporary, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. So when we say thoughts are garments of the soul, one of the great themes in Tanya, it's a very powerful, powerful observation. Ah, now we could come back and appreciate the whole debate and the conversation about Sviras, Sviras Haimer. I think you already have it, but let me just spell it out, because now we can appreciate the depth and the nuance of the Torah law concerning the counting or the, the brightening Sphira of the Omer. The work towards healing, the work towards alignment, the work towards redemption, inner redemption and outer redemption, continues at all times and under all conditions, in the brightest hours and in the bleakest of hours. So we are instructed in Torah to count days, but also to count weeks. We are charged with the duty of learning self-control. That's counting the days. But we're also trying to achieve transformation, not only self-control, which is the count of the week. But it is here that Rabbeinu Yeruchim offers us a very powerful insight. And he says, in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, in a time of great revelation, of great divine awareness, the Torah instructs us. And if it instructs us, it means it empowers us to count not only days, but also to count weeks. In the presence of such intense spiritual and divine awareness, you have the ability, the biblical ability, the divine mandate, not only to make your days shine, but to make make your weeks shine. Not only self-control, but self-transformation. However, today, 
says Rabbeinu Yerucham. We don't breathe the same awareness. We breathe in many more toxins, physically and emotionally. We're in exile. Exile is not just a geographical space. Exile means there is a diminished level of awareness. Exile means I'm alienated from my organic, holistic self. Exile means I'm living in somebody else's domain and they are in control of me. Spiritually, what is exile? Exile means a life that is not fully aligned with its true self. There's no wholesomeness and emancipation on its great level. Hence, he says, the Torah obligates you only to count the days. To gain control over your behavior. Counting the weeks. Meaning, fully transforming the emotions can't be a biblical mandate today. Yet, the rabbis always instituted a mitzvah, zecher lemikdash. Meaning, it's important to remember. It's important to reminisce. It's important to know about the path of transformation. It's important to know that counting the days leads to the count of the weeks. And it's important to understand that transformation always begins with self-control, that the two are not completely divorced, and therefore the rabbis introduced the mitzvah of the weeks themselves. The Rambam believes that today there's a biblical mandate for days and weeks. Toysva says today the entire sphere is a rabbinic mandate. Rabbi Yeruchim teaches us that fascinating opinion. Biblically, you're empowered to count your days, but you don't have to count your weeks. I'll conclude the class with a story I read some years ago and it moved me very, very deeply because it represented, I think, this idea in a very acute and a very powerful, powerful way. One of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century was a man named John Nash. There's a biography written about him. It's called A Beautiful Mind. It's a very heart-wrenching story. The reason it's such a heart-wrenching story is he was born in 1928 and uh, he was seen as a young man to be one of the most promising mathematicians in the world. He set the foundations of what we know today as modern game theory which is basically the mathematics of decision-making, and he was still in his 20s. And his fame grew during his years in Princeton University and Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where he met his wife, his fiancée, his bride. She was a physics major. Alicia was her name. And they married in 1957. But a few years later, insane voices in his head began to overtake his life. He developed a terrible mental illness. In his delusions, he accused one of the mathematicians of entering his office and stealing his ideas. Ideas. He began to hear alien messages. And uh, he was offered tenure at the University of Chicago. He declined because he said he was soon becoming emperor of Antarctica. He believed that all men who wore red ties were part of a communist red conspiracy against him. He mailed letters to embassies in Washington 
declaring that the communists were establishing their government. And his psychological issues became so problematic that at a lecture in Columbia University in 1959, he began speaking rubbish. He was admitted to the hospital and he was diagnosed as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. He spent months, sometimes years, in hospitals, in treatment, in recovery. He received shock therapy, a lot of medications. And his wife could not deal with the pain and the stress. So in 1963, they got divorced. But she felt so much compassion for him. She continued to support him throughout his illness. And once when he was homeless, she had him live in her house as a boarder because he had nowhere else to live. But it was during the 70s that slowly he learned to regain control over his life. He wrote, I had been hospitalized long enough that I would finally renounce my delusional hypothesis and revert to thinking of myself as a human of more conventional circumstances and return to mathematical research. He wrote that after years of suffering, he learned to be able to identify and say, this is the voice of insanity and I need help right now. To be able to have that subtle distinction between a desired self, the self that he valued, and the self that, not due to his fault, was suffering from a terrible illness. Princeton University allowed him to start teaching again. And indeed, as he got control with medication and with a lot of help, he became a world-renowned mathematician to the point that in 2001, Alicia remarried him. She remarried him again, and uh, this was their second marriage. They moved in together, and uh, he and she became one of the greatest advocates for mental health in New Jersey, United States, especially after their son, Josh, was also diagnosed with schizophrenia. In 1994, John Nash won the Nobel Prize in economic sciences. He goes with his wife to receive the prize. And the way they uh, documented or depicted his life, they depicted the following scene I guess to accentuate the story. At the ceremony, Nash says the following. I've always believed in numbers. I've always believed in equations. I've always believed in the logic that leads to reason. But after a lifetime of such pursuits, I ask today the question, what is logic? Who decides reason? My quest has taken me through the physical, the metaphysical, the delusional, and back. And I have made the most important discovery of my career, the most important discovery of my life. It is only in the mysterious equations of love that any reason or logic can be found. I'm only here tonight because of pointing to his wife, because of you. 
You are the reason I am. You are all my reasons. Thank you. And at this moment, as he received the Nobel Prize, he was paying tribute to that one individual who even after the divorce was there for him, helped him, sustained him, took him into her house, helped him find himself once again, and then remarried him because of her faith in him. And at this moment, he was basically saying that the summation of all of my mathematical work is my love to you, my relationship with you. The crowd jumps from their cheers. A thundering standing ovation to a brilliant mathematician who has been to hell and back, not one time and not ten times, but hundreds of times. But after that comes what I would call a very profound and maybe life-changing scene in terms of awareness. Right after the Nobel Prize ceremony, John Nash is leaving the hall. It's the greatest moment of his life. And at that moment, at that moment, when he finally gained such renowned recognition for genuine accomplishments in economics and science and game theory and mathematics, with his wife standing at his side, at that moment, the mental disease suddenly attacks him in the most vicious and sinister way. Suddenly, walking out of that beautiful auditorium in Sweden, the palace, his delusions come right back to him. And in the beautiful hallways of Stockholm, he sees the characters who were responsible for destroying his life. He suddenly sees red commies, the communists coming, hijacking him, abducting him. Suddenly, all those who are here to destroy him, the red communists, are right there at the Nobel Prize ceremony. It's potentially a moment of tragedy, of epic proportions. Here is a man, he just won the Nobel Prize. He just became world-renowned. Considered one of the greatest minds of the generation, of the century. He's standing with his loving wife, basking in the shadow of international glory. And yet at this very moment, the devil of mental illness simply abducts this poor man's soul. Now his wife knows everything. And as she's walking, she takes a look. And even though she can't see what is inside, but the moment she sees his eyes and his face, she knows instinctively he's not here anymore. There's something wrong. He wandered off mentally. He's not present in the real world. His body is overtaken by fear. His eyes are elsewhere. She can see it even if others wouldn't see it immediately. In deep shock... And in an unexpected moment, she turns to her husband and she said, John, what is it? What's wrong? He pauses. In his mind's eye, he looks at the fictional people tormenting his mind. He looks back at his wife. With a smile on his face, he says, nothing is wrong. Nothing at all. Takes her hand and they go off. And this is what I call a moment of true triumph. He has reached a place in his life where he cannot rid himself from those tormenting fictional characters out to destroy him, a result of his mental illness. 
But he reached a place in his life where he has the awareness that allows him to choose. And when his wife, who was celebrating that moment, says, Are you all right? What's going on? We know the truth. Nothing was all right. Everything was wrong. But he chose to define which self he is going to right now breathe, live with, experience, and connect to his wife with. Will it be the schizophrenic self with good justification? It was all there. But at this moment he could say, I suffer from insanity. I struggle with terrible, terrible thoughts that nobody can understand. And I should say this, those of you who are aware of mental illness know what I'm talking about. Those who are not aware of it will never understand the struggle of people who endure these types of illnesses, serious depressions. It's beyond what people can imagine because it's not like illnesses that are visible on the body where you could see an emaciated body. These are things that live inside and nobody knows them. Nobody sees them. But John Nash at that moment became the human being who may not be able to count weeks, light up the weeks, but he could light up the day. He could look at his wife and say, nothing is wrong. Everything is good because I'm choosing to connect with you from my human, rational, elevated, what we would call divine space. He doesn't get rid of the schizophrenia. He learns how to define it rather than letting it define him. And I think the lesson I learned from it is he basically turns to all those images and he says, these are voices that are coming from a part of me that is really ill. But I'm sitting at the wheel of my life. I have decided not to allow these thoughts to take over my life. I will continue living. I will continue loving. And my deepest value in life is I want to connect to my wife. I want to be there for her, with her. I want to hold hands with her. I want to be her partner. That is what I consider good, healthy, valuable in my life, even as the devils will not let go and will tell me I'm incapable of that life. And John Nash later said about himself, he said, I would have never had great scientific ideas if I would have more normal thoughts. Meaning, he came even to look at his illness, I can't say as a blessing, but as a springboard for crazy ideas. Crazy ideas require sometimes craziness in people. Sane people always have sane ideas, but you change the world through insane ideas, not through sane ideas. Every challenge in life is that. Take your insanity, take your trauma, and turn it into an insanity that can produce insane ideas that will change the world. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Where did you work in Mount Sinai? Montefiore Hospital. Really? Montefiore Hospital? As an OT, I was heading my... In the psychiatric ward? On the psychiatric ward. I used to run groups. I used to work there. So you found that the schizophrenic people were what? Very artistic. There, some of them were extraordinarily artistic. And some of them were very, very bright and unusually 
insightful, like in the groups. It was amazing. I ran groups of schizophrenia. Brilliant, huh? Brilliant people. Brilliant insights that you could be blown away from it, how they could just zero in on something that somebody else would miss. That's the uniqueness of it. Yes, but it's also the tragedy. Yeah, it's a tragedy. Because so many of them could never, like, there was one boy. Integrate, right. Who who was amazing. He was amazing, amazing, and he was extraordinarily artistic. He was, like, over-the-top artistic. And he killed himself. Artistic. He was artistic, but in the end, he committed wow. suicide. It was too much, huh? It was too much. Yeah. I the mean, brilliance is unbelievable. But it's in a scion that it's in a scion that is an unbelievable thing. When yes, unbelievableness. Unbelievableness, scion that people can't always overcome. Indeed, 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 indeed. And it's not their fault. It's nobody's fault. If you have cancer, it's your fault. No. Um. But people have to be taught more about it because there are a lot of stigmas. There are a lot of stigmas. And, and, and people who suffer are not look, comfortable. They can't look beyond. Look them in the eyes. They don't they look beyond. They can't look beyond the symptom. A lot of stigma. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.